Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Dr. Kelly Brogan. Kelly is a Manhattan-based holistic women's health psychiatrist, author of the book A Mind of Your Own, and co-editor of the landmark textbook Integrative Therapies for Depression. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College and has a BS from MIT in systems neuroscience. She is board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatics, medicine, an integrative holistic medicine, and is specialized in a root cause resolution approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. She is on the board of Green Med Info, Functional Medicine University, Pathways to Family Wellness, NYS Perinatal Association, Price Pottinger Nutrition Foundation, Mind Foundation, the peer-reviewed index journal Alternative Therapies in Health and Medicine, and the Nicholas Gonzalez Foundation. She is medical director for Fearless Parent and a founding member of Health Freedom Action, and she is also the mother of two. So hi, Kelly. Thanks so much for joining us. Every time I hear that bio, I think, God, I've got to shorten that. <laughs> I just, like, well, now, took a nap while you were reading that. Well, as I was going through it, I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure I'm butchering three or four <laughs> no. of these of these institutes. And his mind, is that double, is it two Ds? Is it yeah, supposed to be like that? Yeah, it's an acronym. Yeah, it's an Australian-based, it's actually a pretty amazing foundation, but yeah, that's it. You got it. Okay. All right. But it is pronounced mind, correct? You got it. Totally. Okay. Mind with two Ds, everybody out there, just in case you uh, you're not aware. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you because this is actually, we're going to talk about a topic that is really, I've felt very passionate about for a long time, which is, you know, notions of mental illness and, and, and ways to approach that or that are maybe alternative to the status quo and, and the way we've been socialized to think about what mental illness is. Um, but before we do that, I would love to just hear a little bit about your own personal story and, and what led you down this path of, of healing. Yes, yeah, so I come from the orthodoxy. You know, I was raised in a totally conventional household. In fact, my mom is uh, an immigrant from Italy. And so, you know, if, if you know any, you know, sort of immigrant kids, we're raised under a very common ethos, which is like authority, 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 go become a doctor or a lawyer, make your money, sort of meet these externalized, um, you know, sort of I don't know, markers of achievement and you'll be fine. And so that's sort of what I did. And I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist, amazingly, because I had worked um, a suicide hotline at MIT where I went to college. Suicide is actually quite a big issue. And I um, sort of came under the illusion as I was studying neuroscience there that we had cracked the code of human behavior. You know, we know how to help people. We just need to get more access you know, to treatment and we have these amazing medications, but we just need to ease their suffering through, you know, sort of access to treatment. And so it really wasn't until, and this is very um, sort of classic for most turncoat physicians, it wasn't until I had a personal experience of the limitations of conventional medicine that I began to open my eyes to a broader story. Yeah. So, you know, I was in the business of medicating pregnant and breastfeeding women, actually. Mm. That was my specialization. Mm. Uh, there's such a thing. It's called reproductive psychiatry. And Whoa. yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole, you know, because now we have one in four women of reproductive age entering into a pregnancy on medication. Okay. Uh, so there it was, you know, there's a burgeoning specialty to theoretically address that or help them to make that decision. But really it's, it's, 
designed unintentionally perhaps to to encourage them to remain on medication based on you know a selection of the literature but anyway so I was writing these prescriptions I was pregnant myself uh, this was nine years ago and I remember writing a prescription for Zoloft for a, a pregnant patient and I remember having this sort of sense like I would never want to take one of these medications as a pregnant woman yeah. myself now finally right and I just ignored that because it was totally dissonant and didn't fit in any way with my, you know, sort of real intellectual zeal for psychopharmacology, as it's called. Yeah. And so it wasn't until I was diagnosed with an autoimmune thyroid condition nine months postpartum with something called Hashimoto's that that same voice came up and basically, you know, told me, I don't want to take medication for the rest of my life. I don't want to do that. That's not for me. That's for my patients. Right. So I very uncharacteristically went to see a naturopath because I knew what conventional medicine had to offer me. And I knew that there was no way out. You know, I knew that I would be on prescription for the rest of my life. And I also knew that I probably would never feel totally well. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went to a naturopath and put my you know, potentially lifelong recidivistic condition into total remission in the space of nine months through lifestyle change. And it not only, you know, sort of opened my eyes, but it made me enraged. And I was really, um, I'm a righteous person. I work very hard on this in my spiritual practice, <laughs> but I am by nature, you know, so, yeah. so I, you know, I went back to the literature. I've always been a science nut and I basically said, I'm going to find out what I wasn't told. You know, so I never learned that you could put an autoimmune condition into remission. I certainly never learned that nutrition had anything to do with anything. You know, we have about an hour of nutrition education in a classical, you know, physician training, uh, all total. So I, um, I basically unlearned everything that I learned. I started with, um, actually researching vaccines because it was the biggest decision I had to make, um, in my you know family life. I researched psychiatric drugs. I researched antibiotics. I researched the birth control pill that I took for 12 years. I researched over the counters like acid blockers and painkillers. And I basically learned in each and every instance that we were not taught the whole of the scientific literature. And so therefore not a single patient I had ever interacted with was properly consented for anything I had ever prescribed or recommended. So that was the beginning of a rabbit hole I, I have yet to emerge from. <laughs> wow. So what were what were some of the things that you discovered in, in when you when you were you're saying that you weren't um, you weren't privy to all of the literature? So what were kind of the maybe more disturbing things that you discovered about the literature that you hadn't known before? Well, you know, there are some common themes when you look at very commonly um, recommended and, and even sort of like the sacred cows of conventional medicine, there's common themes. And, you know, what, what seemed to be happening was that there's a promise that's offered, right? Take this and you'll feel happy. Take this and the, that nasty bug that's infecting you will go away. You know, take this and you'll never get sick. Take this and your pain will go away. So there's a promise. And then, you know, there's the use of fear marketing. So we are fear-based marketing. So we are one of three countries in the entire world that allows for direct-to-consumer advertising, which means that corporations, businesses can speak to us directly about our health, 
right? And we forget that they're actually business entities. And we think that because it's the realm of health and because doctors are sort of the, you know, sort of the priests in, in this um, dynamic, that they must have our well-being at heart. Well, of course, that's not the case. So, you know, through fear-based marketing, there's an escalation of the use, maybe longer-term usage, maybe more widespread usage, um, that is no longer than evidence-based. You know, some of these medications are studied for six to eight weeks. People take them for 20 years, yeah. for example. And, you know, then it becomes consensus medicine, which means that we just all agree that this is cool. You know, we don't care that the science doesn't support it. And it's now the gold standard simply because we're all doing it. Um, And so... I was uh, obviously, as a, as a trained psychiatrist, very focused on how to integrate this knowledge into my practice, and it really wasn't until I read a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic um, in 2010 that I put down my prescription pad for good forever. And the reason that I did was because this book essentially makes the argument based on science that I was not exposed to in my Ivy League training, you know, it makes the argument that, in fact medications are perpetuating, psychiatric medications specifically, uh, are perpetuating epidemics of disability at an ever escalating rate. So it's not that more and more people are mentally ill. In fact, mental illness is a fabricated construct to serve an industry agenda. Yes. And that is very obviously very provocative, but because I had had my own healing experience before reading it, I was ready you know, I had another methodology to fall back on uh, with my patients, and I was ready to sort of receive this information and not reflexively, reflexively dismiss it, which I might have done at an earlier point in my career. But of course, it's not limited to psychiatric drugs, but psychiatric drugs are potentially the most... Um, I don't know, dangerous, because we don't have any objective testing in this field, right? You have a 10-minute conversation, you know, with, with a doctor, and you're labeled potentially for life, and you're given a prescription that could potentially be a Russian roulette, literally, you know, inducing states of impulsive suicidality and homicidality. I mean, this isn't sensationalism. It's in the scientific literature. It's just that you're not hearing about it because our media is funded by the very industry, you know, that seeks to profit from your consumership. So it's a, it's a bit of a nasty web to unravel, but, you know, we could talk about the good news too. Yeah, yeah, we, and we will. But, you know, and one of the things that it, it seems really pervasive, and, and, I, and I know this in, in, in some of my interactions with friends who, who aren't as sort of um, versed in the alternative modalities and they don't, they're not really familiar with any of it. And, and it's the normalization of this kind of, um, you know, dialectic between their mental illness, their sickness on the one hand, and the necessity of drugs on the other. And it's, and, 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 and even when people are more flexible about it, they, they, they're at least going to say, well, you know, it's, people are over-medicated, but there are still situations in which these drugs are necessary. So I'm, I'm hearing maybe that you have an alternative point of view. (laughs) So in that, so in that situation where someone says, no, there are extreme situations where drugs are necessary, what do you say? to that? 
Mm, I get this question, of course, all the time. Less so now, um, because I have started to ask patients and, you know, citizens of the world and people who have completed, I have an online program, people who have completed that program to speak out on video. Because you can, you know, take it from me and easily just wave your hand, you know, that I am, you know, some quack or zealot or whatever, um, both of which are true. But, you know, you could also just take it directly from, you know, the, the uh, experiencer's mouth. And so I believe that there are no carve-outs. I believe based on, I would say, at least two tiers of concern that there is no role for psychiatric medication in the human experience. My first tier of concern is an evidence-based concern. I have grave uh, you know, I take grave issue with the fact that we are not what's called risk stratifying um, patients for the potential for even a few doses of a medication to drive them to murder a family member, to shoot up a shopping mall, or to take down an airplane. We know, based on the literature, that there is a risk. It's called akathisia-induced impulsivity. It's a known entity, okay? But we have no means at this point of identifying who would be vulnerable to that. How can you justify a single prescription? Literally, a single prescription. So that's, you know, one element. Another major concern I have is what we are learning about the long-term use of these medications, which obviously began to escalate in the 80s, um, which is that they're potentially the most habit-forming chemicals on earth. Mm -hmm. So to come off of these medications is no small ordeal. And that's why there are literally millions of people screaming on the internet about how violated they feel by their prescribers to have never been told that it is, you know, literally you could develop something that looks like an AIDS syndrome. You become so disabled, so sick, and so incapable of maintaining any functionality in your life, simply trying to come off of a medication you started because you had a breakup with your girlfriend in college. Literally, this is what we're looking at. And so, you know, this is, again, now entered into the literature as recently as 2014, where this is a known withdrawal phenomenon because we used to tell patients that it was their illness relapsing, but patients know that's not the case. Yeah. So, you know, with those concerns, we have to take this much more seriously. But then there's the sort of more um, spiritual philosophical layer, which is there's no free lunch, Right? If you are being presented a crisis in your life, whether it is acute hopelessness, whether it's psychosis, whether it's mania, whether it's you know, recurrent panic attacks all day long, whether your OCD is so bad that you've picked holes, you know, literally through your cheek. I've had a patient like that. You know, there is a driver. There is a root cause, whether it is a thyroid imbalance, blood sugar imbalance, a single nutrient deficiency, and these are all evidence-based you know, um, concerns, whether it is a mismatch in your life with a partner, with a job, whether it's a toxic exposure in your home, whether it's unmetabolized childhood trauma. You have to look look at it. You have to move through that wound because you will n not get out without repercussions. This is the American consciousness that we believe that we don't have time, you know, to examine our challenges, that suffering is a problem. Literally, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is like the Bible in psychiatry, mm -hmm. 
crying tearfulness it's called is a symptom of illness literally how how wrong have we gotten it you know and and how many millions of people have we convinced billions have we convinced that this is an acceptable way to engage the human experience so you know i just came back from india i've never been before yeah and it was Literally, I've spent a week just trying to reintegrate into this culture because, and I was only there for two weeks, because I had never been somewhere where spirituality is the default, yeah. right? And even though they struggle with, you know, on a Maslow's hierarchy, like pretty basic human needs not being met, okay? Yeah. Like a level of poverty I've never been exposed to before. There is a sense of ease and even joy, believe it or not, that we wouldn't even recognize as Americans. And it's because I, I imagine there is a sense of being held by something bigger that allows you to move through challenges in life and to tolerate experiences and to focus your energy on what is, you know, and, and perhaps even a gratitude for, you know, what you have that, you know, left me speechless when this teenager I was talking to asked me what kind of a doctor I am, because I couldn't even, how could you make sense out of the fact that there is such a doctor that gives medications, you know, for difficult behaviors like that. You know what I mean? Like it's just not, it wouldn't even have made any sense to him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my bias at this point is why don't we at least start with the basic pillars? So, you know, let's start with healing the body because everything gets clearer when your body is healed, everything, you know, and then we'll see what's left. And, you know, this obviously often requires the support of, you know, family members and partners, and there's a special alchemy to this. It is not for everyone, but I can only hope that by demonstrating the outcomes that are possible, it will become for more and more people, you know, an answer that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I read your art, your blog post about India and it was really beautiful. I actually listened to that video. I watched that video. Are there, was it just a random fam, a family that you... So it's a, this family um, is a friend of one of the people leading the this Kundalini Yoga retreat. They had become friends, mm -hmm. and it was one of the most incredible, you know, in this family. So this is what is in Amritsar, like a very sort of Sikh dominant um, city where the Golden Temple is. It's a very sort of you know devotional place, and in this teeny house. It wasn't a house. It was like, I don't even know what you would call it. Like, it was like a cave, <laughs> practically. There's a room, okay, like ostensibly the bedroom. And in the bed, the bedroom was given to the City Guru Granth, which is like their holy book. The bedroom was given to this book, okay? And the rest of them, three sisters, a brother, and two parents lived in this hallway, basically downstairs. And these people, to be in their energy, literally, they played that for us, just, you know, a group of 10 of us. And every single person in the room had tears, like, streaming down their face. It just to so be in their energy was healing. And, you know, these people, by American standards, you know, should be on the verge of suicide for how much they're struggling with. Right. You know, on the material plane, yeah. it's just incredible. Yeah, when the three of their voices came together, I was like, I had shivers. It was so shivers, powerful. right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, um, one thing that you wrote actually that I, I that I just want to 
bring into, and then we'll kind of move into where I think we're naturally moving, which is ideas around the sick gut and microbiomes and food as medicine and that sort of thing. Um, you mentioned, um, I really like this, this thing you wrote, the guild of psychiatry is one of the greatest threats to the soul's journey because it denies the existence of the soul. Yeah. So I feel like we're already sort of talking about that, but, and, you know, with reference to India and being held by this sort of, you know, ethereal something. So do you want to unpack that a little bit more and kind of how, how that sort of segues into, um, the good news? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's a funny thing, you know, the etymology of psychiatry is doctor of the soul. That's yeah. literally what it means. And, you know, so it's, it's no small irony that we have come to this point in medical history where psychiatrists are the gatekeepers of normalcy. You know, particularly in this country, but we are having an insidious effect through bioimperialism on the rest of the world, including the third world, maybe especially the third Ooh, world. I like that word, bioimperialism. Writing that down. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the new colonization. You know, where where we decide what health is uh, for the rest of the world, and we deliver our vaccines and antibiotics and you know psych medications, and we convince people that they are sick in ways that perhaps through their indigenous or cultural cultural uh, framework, they would never, you know, consider to be the case. So, you know, we're at this point at which it is up to a psychiatrist um, in this country to determine when your belief system, when your perspectives, and when your behavior do not conform to the dominant orthodoxy. Mm. And this is, you know, Foucault warned about this, you know, um, this is one of the most potentially insidious dangers. You know, these are the root, this is the sort of philosophical roots of a Holocaust. Um, and on, on many levels, psychiatry has the potential to, to go to this place again, mm-hmm. because when you do not conform to the expectations of a medicalized society, um, you are deemed unwell and forcibly medicated. I mean, in my training, I, of course, I've been a libertarian for quite some time, so I never really, you know, took advantage of this, um, you know, as a trainee, but it was well within my, you know, purview to forcibly inject someone with medications that we didn't even know necessarily the effect that they would have on this individual uh, against their will. You know, this is, it's a, it's a barbarous system. It's draconian in ways, you know, shock therapy is still routinely administered in New York City. What? It's not funny that people don't even know that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a rabbit hole that that unless you have are a psych survivor, they're called. You know, unless you have come out the other end, um, you would almost never believe it. Oh. And so, it's um it's really important that we begin to hold a space together um, for struggle and suffering. Mm-hmm. Period. I think maybe that's the most important thing we can do um, as a as a kind of activism, you know, is to make it okay for your friend, for example, um, to feel hopeless yeah. for a while. You know, to to be there with it, sit with it, just be in it. Because what happens is it transforms. Mm-hmm. At any given point, probably twenty percent of the women that I work with are su- actively suicidal, and I know that the gold is on the other side. I know that it's going to transform if we just don't reflexively react and we sit and let it move through. 
this is the nature of the human experience, right? And, and we've lost touch with that. Um, but my bias is, you know, that, that it's so much easier on some level to commit to that very challenging path if your body feels like your own. You know, if you, if you reunited with your body, you've made a truce with your body and you begin to trust its ability to repair, um, in, in, in epic ways, you know, you could trash your body for decades and give it a good month of self-care and it'll come right back to you. And so that's why, you know, I work with a lot of yogis who, you know, are very deep in their spiritual practice, but they don't know what the hell to eat. And they yeah. eat cookies and drink four cups of coffee every day. Like me. Um, <laughs> exactly. And I love chocolate chip cookies. Are you telling me I can't have I'm them, Kelly? Tag you. I'm telling you, listen, I'm going to leave with the promise. I'm telling you that there is something so much more awesome for you to feel. Listen, I come from, I was like the junk food queen because I never got fat basically. So I could eat whatever the hell I wanted. And believe me, I did. And for me to tell you that to not eat sugar or pizza, like is so liberating when you eat stuff that, that is that good, it actually sucks for you. You know what I mean? It actually is like a, an, it's like you're a slave to your relationship to these, you know, surrogate pleasures in life. And you put so much energy towards it. And it's energy that if you could reclaim it would take you to crazy places. I mean, the, my experience and my patients experiences are that, you know, the, un the unfoldment be becomes so fun. Like you get into your alignment and life is just like a wild ride, you know, with synchronicities and like wild opportunities. And what you thought was just sort of like, Oh, well, this is probably how my life is going gets blown open. And there's so many new opportunities that you could have never even fathomed. This is the nature of like a full reclamation of your consciousness. And my, you know, orientation is to just begin first with the body, send it a signal of safety, heal your gut, you know, begin to detox your environment. The pillars are really simple. It's very basic, you know, it's a, you know, a specific, but very basic diet, um, commitment for a month. It's, you know, detoxing your products. And in some cases, if you're on medication, it's detoxed through something called a coffee enema. Um, and then it's a daily commitment, three minutes a day, of meditation. I am a Kundalini yoga zealot. Mm -hmm. So that's my bias. And I recommend a three minute Kundalini yoga meditation. You can Google Kundalini yoga meditation and put any word digestion, heartbreak, intuition, you know, PMS. And there is one, there are thousands of them all for free on the internet, on the internet. And you can adjust it down to a three minute experience and commit to it in the morning. First thing when you wake up and I can virtually guarantee, you know, perhaps after the first time, but at least after a week, you will begin to feel different in all sorts of weird ways. I just did an interview yesterday of a course completer who attributes pooping every day for the first time in her life to a three minute daily meditation. Mm -hmm. This is because we're learning. It's all connected. It's yeah. all one web. And when you enter with all of these top down interventions, you just like, you know, bust apart all of the 
you know, cobwebs and you clear the white noise and you get super ready for whatever you need to, uh, how you need to upgrade, you know, as yeah. a spiritual being. Yeah. So for the, for someone who's listening, who may be still skeptical that what they eat could have that much power over Cause I, I, I take the idea is that, you know, it has a profound impact on your mood and your psychological well-being and your emotional well-being. So can you give us some sort of scientific, um, um, things that have been discovered scientifically that will illuminate this idea of the relationship between the gut and our emotional health? I would say one of the most well-researched entities is actually um, a component of wheat and related grains called gluten that's now a bit in the zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so people have heard of it and know about it. And, you know, there are many different theories about why this is becoming more of an issue for people, including the fact that we have um, disappeared so many of our good bacteria over time, you know, through the way we're born, you know, surgically and in hospitals, through the antibiotics we take and the vaccines we use, et cetera, um, that we no longer can digest it without the aid of these beneficial bacteria that we no longer have. That's one theory. But for whatever the reason is, we are discovering that people are more and more sensitive in more and more unusual ways to the effects of processed wheat. Um, and there are published cases in the literature, there's actually more than 200 uh, published papers on the brain-based effects of gluten. Mm. Uh, but we have a pretty good understanding that even though the inflammation is at the gut level, you may have like totally fine bowel movements and no gas, but the manifestation of the pathology and the problem is literally at the behavioral level. Mm. So, you know, um, a case I recently wrote up um, in, in a blog that was in the New England Journal of Medicine looked at a young woman, I think she was 37, who literally was so psychotic and delusional that her family took out a restraining order on her, and she was medicated with antidepressants and antipsychotic medications that didn't help, and it wasn't until I think a year later that she was actually tested, um, found to have a thyroid condition and wheat sensitivity. She was put on a totally gluten-free diet and within two months was her absolute healthy, normal self. Wow. Okay. So if you don't know this about the potential relationship between your food and your mood and behavior, then you will end up a psych patient for life. And that nobody wants that. No. Even if you believe in psychiatry, you still kind of don't want to take meds for the rest of your life. Who wants that? It's a natural resistance, right? So if I'm telling you there's a way out, and I have personally published cases in the peer-reviewed medical literature, I have video evidence, you know, of cases that are so extraordinary, none of my prescribing colleagues have ever had a single outcome like this. Why wouldn't you try it? Yeah. It's a month of your life. Like, give it a whirl. A month goes by like this. Commit to it and try it and just see what happens because the alternative is not so great. And even if you're on medication, so most of my patients come to me on medication and they have a desire to come off, but we don't taper their medication before they do this month of, of self-care, self-healing. Wow. Wow. Such an inspiring note to end on. Thank you, Kelly. This has been so awesome. Um, so can we uh, get a little bit of information about you for those that are listening that want to learn more or study with you or maybe seek you out in terms of your, um, um, what do you call it? Do you call it psychiatry now? What do you, what do you? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. I refer to myself as a holistic psychiatrist. 
psychiatrist, Got but um, I certainly, you know, I, I, I certainly obviously don't use medication in my treatment protocols, but yeah, I mean, I have a website. It's just kellybroganmd.com and I love to write and, um, You're a beautiful also, writer. You're really thank beautiful. You, thank yeah. you. I love to sort of like try to, in, um, expose people to the science that is less popularized by mainstream media. Um, but we also have a ton of resources. Almost my entire book is available on my website and blog form for free. And, you know, we also have have obviously more intensive support available. It's my belief that every single person on the planet, you know, is, is entitled and should be entitled to, to this second chapter, to this other way. And so we just try to make that as easy as possible. All right. Well, thank you for doing the work that you do, Kelly. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Well, folks, there you have it. That was our interview with Dr. Kelly Brogan. For more about Kelly, go to kellybroganmd.com. Until next time, friends. Bye-bye.